Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 12. Well, it probably hasn't slipped anyone's notice that we've, what seems like very quickly, entered a new year. Uh, on the one hand, I wonder where 2021 went, and the other hand, I wonder how long it took, or why it took so long for 2022 to come. Uh, looking back, and, and persons tell me this, especially with children, that you know, you're going you're gonna to miss the day, these days, and they really do seem to go by so fast. Um, and yet we, entered a, we enter a new year, and one of the reasons we like to celebrate the passing of time and the marking of a new year is that it provides something of a mental reset, or it, I guess it feels like we can, we can start afresh. Persons, they double down on those New Year's resolutions. Um, gym memberships or gyms themselves live and die off of New Year's. And really, by any account, the past two years have been physically and emotionally draining. No matter what your political view is, no matter where you stand, it has been exhausting. There's no doubt about that. And we're ready for rest. I am. I'm sure you are. I know many other persons are. In fact, I don't think there's anyone who is hoping that 2022 will be more exhausting or harder than the previous two years. But the question comes is, where is rest to be found? How are we to rest? What does this rest look like? Is it going to be found in new technological advances, new medical advances? Will it be found in some new vaccine? Is it going to be found in a new job, a new house? For all of its ills, COVID has really been a catalyst to illustrate the reality that trying to find rest and hope in man or man's achievements is little better than playing whack-a-mole. The moment you try to address one problem, you create two more. It's becoming even more apparent as the days go by. As soon as you tackle one disease, another one takes its place. The world is blind to what should be apparent and obvious at this point, which is the futility of finding rest and security in governments, in rulers, in isolation, in political movements, in medicine, or anything else. And yet the world continues to run after these things, running itself to death, exhausting itself to death. And so it's really in the shadow of this hopelessness that the light of the gospel shines all the brighter. Because there is an answer to the futility of this world, this futility that leads to exhaustion and this yearning for rest that can't be found in anything that the world has to offer. And we know this. We know this from the studies we've had as we've worked our way through Matthew, that there is rest to be found. But that rest is not found in the things of this world. That rest is found in Christ. As Lord of the Sabbath, he is the source and the fountain of the rest that we long for. So if you desire to find rest or renew your rest in the new year, then the answer is Jesus Christ. And our study this morning illustrates that. It illustrates it anew for us. It reminds us. It takes us back to the hope and the promise of rest in Christ. As we see his role and his title as Lord of the Sabbath exemplified even further. So read along with me if you would. Matthew chapter 12 beginning down in verse 9. Departing from there. 
he went into their synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered, and they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they could accuse him. And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable, then, is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word this morning, as we turn to the study through Matthew, and we encounter this passage that reminds us yet again of Jesus' role and title as Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of rest. Father, help us to understand anew this passage, to rightly apply it to our lives, and to delight and rest in Jesus Christ this morning. In your name, amen. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first of these two Sabbath interactions. Uh, Jesus had these with the Pharisees, and they were concerning the Sabbath. But, and we're going to return this week here in our study of the Gospel of Matthew to the second of these interactions. But you may remember, as we noted previously, the questions concerning the Sabbath. These Sabbath is merely an opportunity for these interactions. It's a, something of a foil against which... Matthew can portray and describe something new about Jesus Christ because the point, the concern, is not the Sabbath itself. Instead, this, the Sabbath becomes the instrument Matthew uses to continue to reveal who Christ is. Again, chapters 11 through 16, within those chapters, Matthew wants to present Jesus Christ. Like he's setting him on that lazy Susan in the middle of the table and just chapter after chapter, verse after verse, he's slowly turning it, revealing a new facet of who Christ is. Or that, that jewel or that diamond you hold up to the light and you start turning it and you see new characteristics, new features, new brilliance on display. And that's what Matthew does as he works through chapters 11 through 16 is reveal Christ and who he is. With the goal that we would delight in him. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, verses 1 through 8 of this chapter introduced us to Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath. In fact, that's how it concluded. And so verse 9 begins with Jesus going into their synagogue. Now, we've got to refresh ourselves because it's been a couple of weeks. Who is the there? Well, it's the Pharisees. It's the ones he's just been interacting with. These antagonists, these guys who are trying to pick a fight, he ups and follows them into their own synagogue. These ones who had brought accusation against Jesus' disciples as they were walking through the fields in their effort to discredit Jesus and his ministry. So having dealt with them privately or somewhat privately in the fields with just his followers around, Jesus now is going to deal with them in the synagogue, publicly, in front of others. You'd think they would know better by now. Perhaps they thought that they had a better chance of trapping Jesus in a public setting rather than in the private one they had just been in. Whatever the case, they decide to engage Jesus yet again. Try to trap him, to accuse him, to bring a legal charge against him. 
So Jesus goes into the synagogue, these Pharisees who earlier had been lying in wait to accuse him. Now, however, rather than try to make accusation against Jesus' disciples, a that would then fall upon him as their master, their teacher, their rabbi. They go after Jesus himself and attempt to trick Jesus into breaking the Sabbath or at least verbally undermining the Sabbath law. Or we might say their interpretation of Sabbath laws as it becomes clear. And then in verse 10, we see that these Pharisees, they question Jesus regarding whether it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath. And Matthew gives us immediate insight into their motives it's so that they could bring a charge against him. But even without this statement, if you were to read the rest of this, it becomes very apparent, very obvious, the motives of these Pharisees. Even without that clarification at the end of the verse, their motives are clearly apparent and they are anything but pure. Anything but inquisitive, anything but a desire to learn. In fact, it becomes really apparent when you just look at the example that they give. Notice the lack of care and compassion that they show to the man with the withered hand. I mean, to them, they walk by, they point to that man, he's just a tool for them. He's a showpiece uh, to debate a point of the law. There's no care, there's no compassion, there's no concern for this man. What's really ironic about this is that in the interaction in the fields, just a few verses earlier, Jesus had reminded these Pharisees of the Old Testament teaching that God desires what? Compassion. He desires compassion, not sacrifice. And here they are demonstrating anything but compassion. They have completely failed in comprehending and applying that first lesson of just applying a lesson from the Old Testament that should have been readily apparent. We went to three different places in the Old Testament that reiterates God's desire for compassion, loyalty, faithfulness above religious display. And there's many more we could have gone to. They would have known these and yet they missed it. They've completely missed the point. And they're doing little more than making a mockery of the handicap. Those in society for whom God has particular concern, the poor, the needy. Now, we don't know for certain what the rabbinical teachings were and what nuanced legal answer they were looking for with their question. We know some things. We know, for instance, that there were prescriptions that had been made that in the case of life or death, you could intervene to the health and well-being of a person, but that was pretty much the limit. Beyond that, we don't have anything else. We don't know what other exceptions may have existed, if any. There was probably and likely debate amongst themselves about how far you could go in intervening in the health and well-being of someone. Interestingly, Unlike the healings we've seen thus far, it's not the man, it's not his friends or his family members who initiate the question of whether Jesus will heal this man. That's perhaps because as maybe this man was a faithful Jew who desired to observe the Sabbath. And the last thing he was going to do is ask Jesus to potentially violate the Sabbath by healing him of a non-life-threatening ailment. It's clear from the questioning of these Pharisees that they 
belonged to the group of those who saw this non-life-threatening healing or any healing of a non-life-threatening issue as unlawful, as not permitted, as breaking the Sabbath, violating the fourth commandment. A violation that, if strictly followed, carried with it the punishment of death. Perhaps they you know, didn't expect Jesus to actually heal him, but they wanted to hear his answer. They wanted to embroil him in debate that would, in due course, expose more of his liberal Sabbath practices. And while the true motives of their heart become abundantly clear at the end of verse 14, here at the outset, they desire to bring legal accusation against Jesus. Now, if it's legal accusation, and that's what this word means, this word accused, is a word that is tied to a legal accusation. If they want to bring a legal accusation, this legal accusation is tied to the violating of the fourth commandment. In other words, the accusation they wanted to bring is that this man is worthy of death. Jesus' response, however, closes their mouths and really sends them scurrying back into their holes. In verses 11 and 12, Jesus answers in the form of a question. Now, not only does the content of Jesus' response demonstrate amazing insight and awareness, but the, the practice, the general practice of responding to their questions with a question, to their manipulative attempts with a question, sets a really helpful pattern and practice that is quite profound for dealing with accusers. And while that's certainly not the emphasis or the main point you should walk away with, it's nonetheless worth emulating. His ability to parry the attacks of his antagonists was superb. It was par excellence. Asking questions is itself an excellent way to respond to accusatory questions, to refocus, to bring the discussion back to the main argument, the main point, the substance of what there is, the heart of the matter, and it avoids getting caught up in worthless, fruitless unnecessary discussion and debate. But it's ultimately the content of Jesus' answer or question that reveals the heart of these Pharisees. Jesus' answer seems to be almost proverbial, as if this is something that had been asked and answered, that it was well known that yeah, if an animal is hurt, if your, if your livestock is in danger, you can rescue it there in verse 12, as if it was commonly accepted teaching or practice that one would care for an injured animal. In fact, only a sociopath would do otherwise, is the implication. Of course you would care for an animal that was stuck or was injured. What type of cruel or uncaring person would do otherwise? It immediately makes the Pharisees want to be part of the nice, the caring group. So yes, we would take care of that animal. In fact, even the most fastidious of religious leaders had made some form of allowance to alleviate the hurt of a trapped animal on the Sabbath and provide relief. For some, they could full-on rescue it. For others, as long as you didn't lift it out of the pit, it was okay. You could toss it some food, you could put a board down so it could climb out, but as long as you didn't lift it out, you were okay. They came up with all types of creative ways of saving, rescuing the animal to avoid breaking the Sabbath. Those in attendance at the synagogue were probably nodding along in agreement. Of course, this, this makes perfect sense. And so the assumptive statement, what man is there among you who would not care for his 
hurt animal, it prepares the listeners for Jesus' next statement, or as one commentator puts it, for the other shoe to drop. We don't know what tone of voice Jesus used at this point. Perhaps it, perhaps he's still pleading with them. Jesus didn't arrive hating and out to destroy these Pharisees. He came calling for repentance. And so perhaps at this point he's still pleading with them early on in his ministry to see, to understand, to recognize the reality that the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the Sabbath had always been a means of pointing toward the Messiah and their need for Christ. Perhaps he was pleading with them to understand and remember that ancient truth that man was created in the image of God. Taking them back to creation in Genesis 1-2 through 2, and as his image bearers, showing care and concern and alleviating the suffering of one's fellow man could in no way be a violation of the Sabbath. Perhaps Jesus wants them to remember the whole law, namely the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Upon which Jesus says in Matthew 22, 37-40, depends the entire law and the prophets. Or perhaps that harder edge that we find later in the ministry had already begun to set in and Jesus' tone had taken on a firm and rebuking sound filled with rebuke and disdain at their hard hearts and attempts to crush the people under the weight of their man-made religion and rules. Either way, Jesus' response is one on a rescue mission. He's firmly exposing the hypocrisy and the false teaching of these religious leaders and this religious system that they had created on top of the Old Testament. Whatever the tone of voice, Jesus' response eviscerates the attempts of the Pharisees to trap Jesus or get him to contradict the law of God. Arguing from the lesser to the greater, that is, if you'll save an animal, you'll save a man. Making that argument, Jesus traps the Pharisees and forces them to acknowledge that their own logic and reasoning points to the absurdity of their question. Mark tells us in Mark 3.5 that Jesus concludes by asking the Pharisees, is it lawful to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? Which is lawful? Mark also says at this point, the Pharisees refused to speak. Now, I don't think they were sitting passively by. Having trapped them in their own logic, you can almost picture the tightened jaws, the eyes full of hatred, shooting daggers, the clenching and unclenching of fists as they kept silent while underneath seething like a volcano waiting to erupt. And Mark says that though Jesus grieved over them, that is these Pharisees and their hardness of hearts, that he was angry with them. There's no question as to why he's angry. But it's not just one reason, it's many. They've utterly misinterpreted and misunderstood the Old Testament. They've failed to demonstrate and to preach compassion and faithfulness. They've misunderstood the Sabbath, the very hope and the promise of rest that should have been pointing to the Messiah. They have obfuscated with their rules and their requirements. They have burdened the people. And when called to account, they dig in deeper. This, by the way, is a good place to stop and to ask how do we respond when sin is shown in our lives? Do we, do our hearts soften? Do we desire to respond in repentance? 
Or do we respond like these Pharisees? Maybe not outwardly and verbally responding in hatred or saying no, but inwardly seething, clenching our fists, tightening our jaw, remaining steadfast, clinging to our sin. For the true believer, our response should be one of repentance. So Jesus grieved over them, but he was firm. He was angry with them. But he can't get a response out of them, so he turns his attention to this man who had been ignored and abused, spiritually abused by the Pharisees. And he answers his own question that he asked in verse 12 by saying, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And because the Pharisees have no response and there is really nothing they can say, at least nothing that would help their case, and because Jesus has turned their question on its head, the only logical thing to do at this point it's for Jesus to heal the man's hand. Since it is, as Jesus has himself demonstrated, the right, the good, and the lawful thing to do. And really, could there be anything more appropriate on a Sabbath, a day of rest and restoration, than to provide a glimpse of the coming kingdom restoration by restoring to this man his withered hand? And a glimpse of the reversal of sin and its curse of suffering and death. Really, nothing could be more appropriate on the Sabbath. To provide a glimpse and a reminder of the hope of that eternal promised rest. And notice what Jesus had the man do. He had him stretch out his hand. Nothing there violates the Sabbath. And then what happened? What did Jesus do? Well, it doesn't say. It just says his hand was healed instantaneously, immediately. Think about how absolutely miraculous this was. It's one thing to watch a shriveled up hand become healthy again, but now he needs to go through several weeks of rehab to regain muscular function, right? No, the healing was total. It was complete. He could immediately use this hand like the other hand. It was miraculous. But what is really ironic here is that God heals his hand at the behest of Jesus, there's nothing here that actually violated, other than the fact that it was healed, there's nothing the Pharisees could even point to to say he actually violated the fourth commandment because there, it looked effortless. It, for all intents and purposes, happened. And yet clearly it was God who was at work. But more than just the ease, the power Jesus exhibits over the curse of sin and disease is put on display. When he asked the man to stretch out his hand, again, hardly a violation of the Sabbath by any standard, and yet, this is what I find amazing here, is the one who does the good and the one who heals on the Sabbath is the one who instituted the Sabbath, God himself. So if anyone is going to be accused of breaking the Sabbath, now it's got to be God. It's God who heals at the behest of the Son. It's God who must now be accused of violating the Sabbath since he's the one who performed the work. This act by God both validated Jesus' ministry as well as authoritatively affirmed Jesus' words concerning the Sabbath. In other words, if God will heal on the Sabbath, then surely it is not a violation to do good on the Sabbath. And yet as miraculous as this 
healing of the hand was. There was no wonder or awe on the part of the Pharisees. In fact, the Pharisees, they knew Jesus could accomplish this. I think that's what's so amazing to me is they showed up, and yes, they asked this leading question about whether it was right to heal. They knew full well Jesus could heal that hand. Can you imagine being that intimately familiar with someone who could reverse the curse of sin and disease, and yet all you're intent on doing is trapping them, tricking them, putting them to death? Despite the clear evidence of the power of God in their midst, and even the approval of God on Jesus' ministry, their response could not be more hard-hearted. In fact, you're hard put to find a more ominous, a more dark but in all of Scripture at the beginning of, than you'd find at the beginning of verse 14. Provides insight into the utter darkness of these Pharisees. It's the light of the gospel. The promise of the kingdom is being proclaimed. The heart of the religious leaders is put on full display. Whereas Herod sought to kill the infant Jesus out of his ignorance, the religious leaders seek to kill the adult Jesus out of their knowledge. The more Jesus revealed about himself and his true origin, the more hard-hearted and venomous they became. Because he was a threat to their religious system. He was a threat to their earthly authority and their power and their wealth. It revealed where their heart was. And they revealed themselves to be children of their father, the devil, whom John notes was a murderer from the beginning. And to demonstrate even more clearly their patronage, what do these Pharisees depart and begin to do? They depart and plot together on how to murder Jesus Christ. It is more than a little ironic, don't you think, that these Pharisees who failed in their attempts to trap Jesus into transgressing the fourth commandment set out to break the sixth commandment themselves. Shows you how little care and regard they actually had for God's law. Well, Matthew's presentation of Christ and the interaction of the Pharisees is itself a call to respond. To respond not as the Pharisees did in their hard-hearted unbelief, but as Jesus is revealed, when we see who he is, how do you respond to him? Do you respond in the hard-hearted unbelief of the Pharisees or as the disciples who continue to follow Christ and put their faith and their trust in him? Jesus is destroying the hope of the Pharisees in their religious system. And make no mistake, there is no religious system that can save you. Salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. And why again does he interact and remind us of all of this that took place regarding the fourth commandment on the Sabbath? to remind us of where true rest is found and what God truly desires and why the Sabbath was instituted to begin with. It wasn't instituted to be a burden to man. It was instituted to give the hope and the promise of eternal rest in Jesus Christ, in the Messiah. We know that salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. 
And if we desire rest then, if we desire freedom from sin, then Jesus is the only one that we can turn to. As we wrap up 2021 and enter into 2022, there's a lot of persons who are worn out, exhausted by the events of these past two years. They're just exhausted with life. And the world looks for rest and it looks for salvation. It tries to find it through new rules, new regulations, new medical advances. And yet, they're never going to find the rest that they seek in this world or in the things of this world. Even if we had the ability to eradicate every sickness in this world, it cannot inoculate us from sin and death. The real rest, the real hope that this world needs and that we need to be reminded of is found in Jesus Christ. These two Sabbath accounts are not presented to teach us how to observe the Sabbath. That's not their point. They're They weren't intended to teach Old Testament saints how to correctly observe the Sabbath. They're not intended to teach the New Testament saint how to correctly observe the Sabbath, the sixth day. The point of these passages is to direct our attention to the Lord of the Sabbath. It's to point us to that source and fountain of rest. There is no longer a single day that provides Sabbath rest because Jesus' promise of rest is never ending. It is continual for all who come to him who are weary and heavy laden, according to Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28. And those are Jesus' own words. There are physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual benefits to rest, but they are not tied to a day of a week. Rather, they are found in the person of Christ. Resting in Christ, though, does not, though it does not necessarily mean a cessation from activity, It may at times. What it really focuses on is a cessation from trying to earn favor with God or rescue oneself and to rest from trying to live without God because that's what's really exhausting. Because there's no hope. There's no true relief. There's going to be times where physical rest is the most God-honoring thing you can do. But there's going to be times where the rest is going to mean that instead we need to be about doing good. In fact, recognizing and entering into this permanent Sabbath rest of Christ doesn't mean we cease doing good. In fact, this rest and our love for Christ should energize us to the doing of good. That is good and appropriate to do. We must recognize that there is a need to do good as a result of this rest in Christ as we've seen this morning because work and activity are not the problem that's not why people are worn out Adam and Eve were busy and working in the garden before sin entered the world the problem the problem this world has is sin which can only be relieved by the Messiah you know the era of the Pharisees wasn't that they weren't busy enough wasn't they weren't trying hard enough. Their error was that they didn't know what it meant to truly rest in Christ, to rest in the Messiah, to rest in God. Yeah, they practiced the Sabbath over and over and over and over and over and over again, but they never understood what it meant. And I think there's a danger that we can fall into that same pattern where We understand that we're to rest in Christ. We hear those words, but 
We're too busy. So we get busy doing things. And some of those things may be very good in, on the one hand, at least from a purely objective standpoint. They, they look good. And yet if you haven't learned how to rest in Christ, they're no better than the works and the efforts of the Pharisees. doesn't mean you should conversely do bad things. No, it means learn how to rest in Christ. So how do we do that? And that's what I want to close out our time this morning is by answering that question is, how do I rest in Christ? Because there's one thing to say it, but it's an abstract idea. It's, it's not something where I can tell you to turn to chapter and verse and there we'll see the instruction. Okay, here's step one, step two, step three, step four. So how do we rest in Christ? How do I enjoy this rest? Well, first and foremost, resting in Christ requires faith in Christ. Repentance from sin, calling out to Jesus to save you from the curse of sin and death. If you have experienced the transforming power of the gospel, then rest is offered to you. It's supplied to you abundantly. So starting there, assuming for a second that you have experienced that transforming power of the gospel, and if you haven't, please find me afterward. Let's talk. But if you've experienced that, then how do I get to enjoy this rest? How do I, as we might use the term, appropriate it? In other words, the table's been set, the food is sitting in front of us, how do I eat it? Well, first, one way to begin to enjoy this rest is by learning how to meditate upon Jesus. Now, meditation, when we talk about it, is not like what the world thinks of as meditation. It's not emptying your mind, it's filling your mind. Filling it by thinking upon the life, the character, the sacrifice, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The promises of future resurrection, a future hope. Studying these things, recognizing these things, learning these things, and then dwelling upon them. How else do you enjoy this rest? Well, adding to that is the expressing of these truths in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's gathering together. It's singing them together as a body corporately. It's singing them, humming them to yourselves at home as you go about your day. We're also encouraged to read Scripture, not because it's another to-do list and we need to check it off in the morning or at night, but because it draws us near to Christ. As the psalmist says, it's, sweeter than honeycomb. What is he drawing upon? It's taste. It's that sensory. It's something I delight in. And you can't taste something from far off. You've got to bring it near. So read scripture. We read it aloud corporately. Read it privately to yourself. But read it and read it with a desire to learn more about Christ. It's a good place to begin is every time you pick up your Bible, say, what is it going to teach me? about Christ. What am I going to see that either points me toward or teaches me directly about Christ? And when you start with that desire, when you start with that mindset, it'll help keep you focused in your reading and in your study. And then pray, talk to him. You can't be close to, you can't draw near to someone you don't talk to. Try that with your spouse for a while. Just go without talking for a week. See how close you feel to one another. You have to talk to him. You have to converse with him. And in so doing, you cast your burdens on him. And we do that because he cares for us. 
Matthew 6 gives us a pattern for this. And Jesus established this pattern because he wants us to draw near to him, to pray, to come to him. And go back and study and look at and remind yourself of the things we've seen in Matthew 6 as we walk through the what's frequently called the Lord's Prayer, which is really the disciples' prayer. It's how the disciples, how a follower of Jesus Christ should be praying. And then trust him. Now, it's one thing to say, okay, trust him. But how do you do that? Well, start by going back to those prayers and start paying attention to how those prayers are answered. We need to trust him. We know that. James says that the one who prays must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. And so we want to learn to trust him. We know we need to trust him. We build trust by experiencing and recognizing places that he's been faithful. It starts with salvation. But just start to contemplate, how have I ended up where I have in life? How do I have the wife I have, the children I have, the friends I have, the education I have? How many times has my life actually been saved? I think we're quick to say, wow, that was a lucky event. Last year, I was hit by a semi on 75. I sh- looking back, I'm not sure how I made it across every lane of traffic, swerving and all without hitting another car. And it's easy to brush that something like that off instead of pausing and reminding ourselves of how the Lord is caring for us and protecting us. doesn't mean things are always going to be easy, but there is plenty that you can point to and remind yourself of his faithfulness, of his answers to prayer. He takes us through hard times so that we learn to trust him. And so we cultivate that by looking back at how he has answered our prayer. The disciples, you don't trust someone that you, you can't draw near to someone that you don't trust. Think of the example Andy brought up this morning of the disciples on the boat, but I think of Jesus asleep in that boat. You know, he had, now he is the, the creator, the sustainer, but while he slept, he could sleep in perfect peace because the Father continues to hold all things up. There's complete rest. There's, a short, there's nothing to be afraid of. He even wakes up or is woken up by those disciples and says, why are you afraid? Why are you not trusting? And so he calms the wind and the seas to remind them of the trust they should have in him. And it becomes a point of trust in the future that they can trust him. And they can look back to that. These are just some of the ways, there's more we could discuss of how you rest in Christ. But if we put these things into practice, if we spend time between our reading and our prayers of just meditating upon Christ, of singing and expressing those psalms, those hymns, and the spiritual songs, if we read scripture aloud corporately or privately, make it a habit of prayer, praying continually, Without ceasing, as Paul says. That doesn't mean every moment of every day is prayer, but it's regular patterns and habits of prayer that are not broken. And when it is broken, start it again. And then trusting him, reminding yourself of how you can trust him, making those lists if you need to, to remind yourself. This is how we rest in Christ. That's how we deal with anxiety. That's how we're going to find peace in the midst 
of a world that is, I mean, it's filled with a lot of reasons to be anxious, if that's all we think about. So if you want to find rest this new year, as we've already said, you're not going to find it in this world. As hopeful as technological advances may be, you're not going to find it in government, you're not going to find it in science, in your job, you're not even going to find it in your family or in your friends, you're not even going to find rest from a vacation. If you want rest this new year, real rest, from the anxiety and the fears and the difficulties of this world, it's going to be found only in the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder this morning of the rest that is offered in Christ. Father, as we enter into this new year, would we be, first, would we appropriate this rest that you've offered to us who've put our trust in Jesus Christ? For any who are here who have not put their faith and their trust in you, I pray that they would do that, that they would be able to feel and understand and recognize and delight in this rest that you offer. Lord, that we would be quick to encourage one another, that we would come alongside one another and help one another enjoy this rest that you offer and delight in the Lord of the Sabbath. I pray these things in your name. Amen.